As you're turning to Psalm 11, please allow me to read from one of my favorite books and one of my favorite books on prayer. It's by Paul Miller. It's called A Praying Life, Connecting with God in a Distracting World. And under a section titled Overcoming Objections, talking about overcoming our objections to to praying, he says this, no matter when or how we pray, we often find reasons why we can't slow down enough to have a regular prayer time. One objection to a daily prayer time is, I pray all the time. While being constant in prayer, Romans 12, 12, is an important way of praying that we'll talk about later. This is no substitute for focused times of prayer. For example, a husband and wife who will only talk in snippets to one another throughout the day would have a shallow relationship. You'd be business partners, not lovers. You can't build a relationship by sound bites. Think about that. Another objection is busyness. When I first heard Martin Luther's comment that he couldn't get by unless he had three or four hours of prayer daily, I scratched my head. Knowing how busy Luther was, you'd think he would want to cut out prayer. Now, years later, it makes perfect sense. In fact, the more pressure, the more I need to pray. I pray in the morning because my life is so pressured. If you are not praying, then you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. You'll always be a little too tired, a little too busy. But if, like Jesus, you realize you can't do life on your own, then no matter how busy, no matter how tired you are, you will find time to pray. Time in prayer makes you even more dependent on God because you don't have as much time to get things done. Every minute spent in prayer is one less minute where you can be doing something productive. So the act of praying means that you have to rely more on God. Let's pray. Father, we in this moment are relying upon you and upon the Holy Spirit to impress your word upon our hearts. We are so utterly dependent upon you and so many times we forget it, we think about it, we suppress that truth because we find it difficult to pray. And that's so strange if we would stop and think about it's hard to talk to you for some reason when you've done so much for us. It's so much easier to get on the computer or turn on the TV. So we're dependent upon you in this moment to begin changing our hearts, to want to communicate with you, to desire to seek your face in prayer. Would you help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you hadn't figured it out, Psalm 11 is about prayer. It's about praying when things are falling apart. So what do you do when things are falling apart? What do you do when everything comes unglued and all seems hopeless? One thing you can do is use your eyes to read what's happening in Psalm 11. And Psalm 11 is far from boring. Psalm 11 is full of flying arrows, which are haphazardly flying like a shot in the dark. Earthquakes and scorching windstorms. Some very strange eyelids. Hot coals raining out of the sky. And a cup full of fire and sulfur that people are forced 
to drink. Psalm 11 is like a mashup of the Twilight Zone and a Salvador Dali painting. It sounds strange, but it's actually very helpful when everything in life is falling apart. But before I tell you what the big idea is today, let me first say that I am not here to shame you. I am not here to shame anyone. I don't think shaming people motivates them to do anything. I don't think guilt motivates anyone to do anything. Grace is what motivates us. Grace should be what motivates us to do something in life. So you have to understand that when I tell you the big idea today, I am not here to shame you. I'm not here to guilt trip you. I'm not here to shame myself. I'm not here to put you on a guilt trip or myself or to shame any of us when I say, stop making excuses and start making time to pray. We all struggle to, to pray, right? I do, you do, everyone does, right? Raise your hand, would you please? If you struggle to pray, come on. Every hand should be up here because I know every one of us do. The disciples did when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before Jesus was crucified. Their eyes were full of cement. And he said, can you not tarry one hour? Their eyes were heavy. They couldn't stay awake. And we struggle too. We struggle to pray. Have you ever fallen asleep praying? Hands up again. You're in good company. Have you ever had your mind drift to something else other than the triune God? Think about that. You're praying to the God of the universe and your mind drifts to something else. It's so absurd, isn't it? Of course your mind has drifted and so has mine. But I'm not standing up here speaking as some prayer guru who never struggles to pray. I'm not trying to shame you into praying. I'm just as distracted as you when it comes to praying. We have 10,000 things competing with our time alone with God. But even though we struggle to pray, and even though we have 10,000 things competing for our attention... We are without excuse. We need to pray. We must pray. And we don't need to make excuses anymore. So let's let the big idea of this sermon land on us as a gentle rebuke today. Are we praying enough as individuals and as a church? One of the areas that I see where we need right help right now today as a church is in the area of prayer. This is where we all need to make some changes corporately and individually. We need to make some time in our lives to pray. It's time to stop making excuses and start making time to pray. Now I know your eyelids will get heavy when you pray, and hopefully they won't get heavy in this sermon, so I'm going to scream as much as I can to keep you awake. But my prayer is that the eyelids that you see in Psalm 11 will be captivating and convincing enough to motivate you to pray. I don't want to shame you in order to motivate you to pray. I want the strange eyelids that we'll see in Psalm 11 catapult you into a life of prayer. And you'll never be motivated to pray unless we jump into the text, so let's do that now. As you enter Israel in David's day here in Psalm 11, notice how things have fallen apart. Open your eyes to picture the landscape in Israel as David is writing this song, this prayer. Look at verses 1 through 3 and hear the word of the Lord. In the Lord, in Yahweh, 
I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Life is falling apart in Israel. Things aren't the way they used to be. The nation is changing. And where does David direct his mind and his heart? To Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. In fact, it's emphatic in Hebrew. In Yahweh, I take refuge. David starts by stating where he finds refuge when things fall apart, when life falls apart. He runs into Yahweh's presence. He takes refuge in Yahweh's character. So here's how I picture David's morning, how it started on the day that he wrote Psalm 11. He wakes up, he makes a cup of Jerusalem Java, and he prays, he takes refuge in Yahweh, he spends time in the Lord's presence, and then he checks his email. And his inbox is full of emails, mostly forwarded emails about how terrible life in Israel is. Forwarded emails about how the nation has changed, how the country is in decline, and how things aren't the way they used to be. He probably also received emails about the government and its leaders and all of the corruption. But David also gets emails from some close friends, and that's who's talking in verses 1 through 3. David's friends are emailing him and texting him and leaving him voicemail messages and telling him this, flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David is barraged by his friends' emails, texts, and phone calls, and they are freaking out because the nation of Israel is changing. It's not what it used to be. And David replies to all of them and says, How can you say this to my soul? How can you forward me those emails? Don't you know that those things don't get me worked up? Don't you know that I take refuge in Yahweh, not some political party or my 401k? Why are you guys telling me this stuff? And here's what they were saying. Everything's falling apart, David. The foundations are crumbling. The nation is changing. You need to get out of here. Get your tent and sleeping bag and head off to the mountains. The wicked have arrows They've taken archery classes at the community college. And we're the bullseye, David. We're the targets. The foundations of our nation are crumbling. What can we do? What can the righteous do? It's hopeless, David. David's friends want David to hightail it out of Jerusalem. But he will not let his friends and their advice direct the course of his life. That does not mean that you should never heed the advice of your friends. Let me explain. First, you may get bad advice. That's the reality. You may get bad advice from your friends. That's what David is getting here. He has godly friends who care about him, but they are giving him the wrong advice. So when you are seeking help from people and you need wisdom, it would be wise to ask 
many people in your life and not just a few. Go wide when seeking wisdom and advice. Don't gather just a few friends to you who will probably tell you what you want to hear. That's the bad advice. You're looking for good advice. David's friends ask him to flee. In Psalm 11, to flee is bad advice. It is bad advice to flee to the mountains in Psalm 11. But in 2 Corinthians 11, when there was a bounty on Paul's life, Paul heeded the good advice of his friends and snuck out of the city at night in a basket, being let down the city wall. So there may be a time to flee, a time to leave a situation, but that's not the case for David in Psalm 11. He's getting bad advice. So make sure you go wide when seeking wisdom. And pray and trust that the Lord is guiding you. But David is not moved by the advice of his friends in Psalm 11 because he takes refuge in the Lord, in Yahweh. And that's why David is perplexed here. That's why he can't figure out why his friends are freaking out. David will not take off. He will not sprout wings and fly like a bird to uh, the mountains. David doesn't seem to be startled by the fact that arrows might come his way. In fact, it may have been that David was literally being shot at. The word behold here, the Hebrew word hene, means to look and see. So David's friends may have been saying to him, Look, bro, there goes another arrow. That one just nicked your head. You need to get out of here. But David doesn't get too worked up over flying arrows Or the fact that the nation is falling apart. So David answers their question. They're asking, what can the righteous do? When the foundations are crumbling, when life is falling apart, what can people do? And I think David's answer is this. We can pray. We can seek the Lord. We can turn our attention to him and let Jesus captivate our hearts and minds. We can quit making excuses and fretting and start trusting and praying. I think David would reply to his friend's emails and say, stop making excuses and start making time to pray. Stop making excuses. Stop stressing. Stop trying to escape. Stop trying to hide away. Start praying. Start focusing on what's happening in heaven with the Lord and not what's happening here with the wicked. And that's what David says in verse 4. In verse 4, David turns his gaze and the gaze of his friends to the Lord. Look at verse 4. The Lord, Yahweh, is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes see His eyelids test the children of man. When life is falling apart, the best thing that we can do is pray. When life is falling apart, the best thing that we can do is turn our attention to Jesus. In verse 4, David is saying that we should quit focusing on flying arrows and crumbling foundations. We should start focusing on the faithful God that we serve. We should turn our gaze to heaven where Yahweh sits enthroned in his holy temple. As Old Testament scholar Alec Motier says, the vision of the enthroned God 
is the great stabilizing factor in life. The vision, when you catch the vision of the enthroned God, it is the great stabilizing factor in life. It's as we turn our eyes repeatedly to God in prayer that we see things in the correct light and we are then stabilized. Seeing Jesus stabilizes us while the foundations crumble. Seeing Jesus stabilizes us while earthquakes shake the moral fabric of our society. Seeing Jesus enthroned in heaven provides the stability we need when arrows fly our way and life is falling apart. But you may be thinking like David's friends were probably thinking, but heaven is so far away, David. That's way out there in space or wherever God is. These arrows are a lot closer. In fact, one just whizzed by our heads, David. But it's the God described in verse 4 that provides the comfort that we need. He rules. He reigns. He is supreme. He is active. He sees and he judges. Look at verses 4 and 6. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Jesus has eyelids, the likes of which you and I have never seen before. Our eyelids get heavy when we pray, but Jesus has eyelids that test the heart of every man. He sees everything that is happening and he tests every human being. And the idea here is that Jesus just doesn't take quick glances at people. He squints He narrows his eyes. He focuses in. He investigates. He scrutinizes. He may be out of our sight, but we are not out of his. And David is trying to encourage his friends with the fact that the Lord tests the heart of every human being. The Hebrew word here for test means to examine. So God looks at our hearts And that's how he uh, distinguishes who the righteous and who the wicked are. God determines through his careful scrutiny who is righteous and who is wicked. He determines who is righteous and who is wicked. And that makes us uncomfortable. Not only is the world so politically correct these days, but it's seeped into the church We've seen this before with David in the Psalms. If you've been with us since Psalm 1, David has written a lot of Psalms that stress that God is holy and that sin must be punished. God is angry at sin and that bothers us. But let's let God be who he has said he is in his word. And here in Psalm 11, He says that he hates the wicked and will rain down fiery coals on their heads and make them take a big gulp out of a cup 
that is full of his wrath. Not exactly the God that most people want. I think Alec Motier can help us here again. He says, over against the danger of current events and the apparent ineffectiveness of innocency and goodness, there is the supreme and vigilant holiness of God. Let me read that part again, and then we'll finish the quote. Over against the danger of current events and the apparent ineffectiveness of innocency and goodness, there is the supreme and vigilant holiness of God. He whose habitation is heaven and whose authority is enthroned over all is nevertheless ceaselessly scrutinizing the behavior of all men. We watch, as it were God's face, the eyes which miss nothing, the narrowing of the eyelids as he assesses the character and conduct of all men. And then we watch his providential ordering of life, whereby the righteous and the wicked alike are tested and proved for the Lord does nothing without inquiry and examination. He responds in no uncertain terms to what he sees. To the godly, he extends his protective presence. Upon the wicked, whose deeds are repugnant to him, he sends the disasters of natural calamity. Instead of trying to change God, try to change your heart. After all, that's what he examines when he looks at the children of man. How do you change your heart? You turn your eyes to Jesus. Because when you turn to Jesus, you see him drinking the cup of wrath that verse 6 speaks of. Jesus took your blame on the cross. He absorbed God the Father's wrath for you. He drank the cup of wrath that verse 6 speaks of. The question is, will you repent and believe? If you do... He will declare you righteous and you have access to his presence. And that's what verse 7 is saying. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The Lord is righteous. That means he must punish sin. And he did that at the cross. And those who repent and believe are declared righteous and they have access to his presence. They can behold his face. And isn't that what prayer is? Isn't prayer just accepting the invitation that God has extended to those that he has declared righteous? Isn't prayer just taking God at his word and beholding his face? And since believers have access to the holy presence of God then perhaps we need another reminder to stop making excuses and start making time to pray. If you are a disciple, a Christian, you've been adopted into the family of God, if you have escaped the holy wrath of a holy God, then doesn't it just make sense that you would pray and seek his face? If Jesus lived and died for you and went to the cross for your sin, then doesn't it just make sense that you would pray and seek his face? If all of the calamities of Psalm 11 fell on Jesus for you, God's hatred of sin, coals of fire, fire and sulfur, scorching wind, if Jesus drank that cup, the cup of God's holy wrath for you, doesn't it make sense to pray and to seek his face? You see, when you rehearse 
the gospel, when you remember all that Jesus has done for you, doesn't it make you want to behold his face? When you think about what you were saved from, eternal damnation, doesn't that make you want to be around, to be in the presence of, and to talk to the God who saved you and has given you access to his presence? Don't you realize we're sinners, we're rebels? And he's invited us in, you see? But there's a cost to being so close to a holy God. There is a cost to being close to God. Which is why Mike Cosper says, fire, smoke, thunder, and death accompany the presence of God. This is the price of sin for a fallen world. His holiness blazes in our sin-stained atmosphere, a scorching warning to those who would dare go near him apart from some measure of protection. There's a cost to being close to Jesus, and he's the one that paid it. We can go near God now because of his son. That's what David is saying. The awesome, incredible, infinitely glorious God of Psalm 11 invites redeemed sinners like you and me into his presence. It's unbelievable. Think about David. His friends are freaking out. They want to retreat. They want to escape. They want to lay low. They don't want to stir the waters and experience persecution. They want to run to the hills. Why? Because life is falling apart. Because the foundation of their lives, their nation, their country is crumbling. And how does David reply? I take refuge in the Lord. I behold his face. I pray. Run to the hills. No way. I'm running up higher than that. I'm running to God's holy temple. I'm going to the throne of grace. And that's what the writer of Hebrews suggests to us. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Notice how the writer of Hebrews is trying to motivate us to pray, not through guilt or shame, but through God's grace. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. David takes refuge in Yahweh. He goes to the throne of grace. He beholds his face in prayer. But David's friends just want to fade away into the background. Just move to the suburbs, I mean the hills, and hide out and lay low. No need to start stirring the waters because the wicked will start shooting arrows. But David says, I will not retreat. I'm going to stay put. David knows that the kingdom of God comes and the gospel spreads not as God's people retreat, but as they stay where they are and infect culture with truth. And David knows that the only way the kingdom will come, the only way the gospel will spread, the only way that we can infect culture with truth, the only way to see the foundations rebuilt is if God's people pray. It will only happen as we take refuge in the Lord and behold his face. But isn't it just easier to drift into the background? 
to hide away in our homes, to just get on the computer or turn on the TV to pass the time until Jesus returns. It is easier, but it's sad. We trade access to the holy God of the universe for such trivial things. Maybe I should let one of my favorite preachers have the mic for a moment so that you don't think I'm trying to shame you because I'm not. And I don't think he's trying to shame us either or put us on a guilt trip when he says this, but just let his words land on you and I'll let them land on me as a gentle, loving rebuke. Here's what John Piper says. One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook. And they're great now because we're connecting with people all over the world, finding out what's going on in people's lives. But what we seem to have forgotten is that one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. We will not be able to stand before the Lord and say, I just didn't have time. So don't even have that excuse tucked in your back pocket. Throw it out right now. I love you, Grace. And I want to remind you today and remind myself, stop making excuses and start making time to pray. Throw out your belief that, oh, prayer is a gift. Some people have the gift of prayer. That's not true. Prayer is just calling out for help, isn't it? Let me ask you, if you were on a cruise ship and you fell off the, the, the boat and you're in the waters and there's sharks all around and you see people up there and they say, do you want us to throw you a life jacket, a rope to pull you up out of there? How many of you would say, I don't have the gift of asking for help? Nobody would. Help, help. That's what prayer is. Just calling out to God and saying, I am so desperate. I need you. I can't parent my kids. I need you, God. I can't deal with work. I can't deal with these people. Please help me. That's what prayer is. It's just saying, I am weak. I am helpless. And I am utterly dependent upon you for everything. Prayer is not just some gift that people have or just some ministry that people are involved in. Every Christian should be a prayer. But it takes work and it takes discipline, which is why Michael Easley said, call it discipline, devotion, duty. It seems that only silver-haired widows know the richness and joy of prayer. Call it discipline, devotion, duty, call it whatever you want to call it. But it seems that only silver-haired widows know the richness and joy of prayer. And I agree with him. And for many churches, that may be true. I don't want that to be true for us. I want all of us to stop making excuses and start making time to pray. I want your kids to pray. I want you to pray. I want us to be a church that if we're known for anything, one of the things that we're known for is that we pray, is that we know how desperate we are for God, that we know how weak and helpless we are, and that we freely just say, help, help, help. 
And isn't our situation just like David's in Psalm 11? Haven't the, na- the, the foundations crumbled in our country? Haven't the foundations crumbled in many churches? Christians today don't want to speak about God being angry at sin. The foundations have crumbled. And what's the reaction of many? Run to the hills. Flee to mountains like a bird. The world is hating us because we stand for traditional marriage and we're against abortion. They're shooting arrows at us. It's time to sprout wings and fly away. It's time to lay low. Keep everything hush, hush. Keep everything on the down low. Let's not talk about Jesus being the only way to God. That's what they were doing in David's day. And what did David say? I take refuge in Yahweh. I behold his face. It's time to stop flying like birds and hiding out in the mountains. And it's time to get into his holy temple. We have access. Why are we not there? It's time to stop making excuses. I know your eyelids get heavy when you pray. And I know it's easy to get distracted. But you have to fight that. If we're going to survive the cultural shift that is upon us, if we're going to resist the temptation to flee because the world is shooting arrows at us, if we're going to make a dent in this world for the gospel, then we must pray. We must be a church of prayer. We must have families that pray. We must be a part of ministries that pray. And we must stop making excuses and start making time to pray. May the Holy Spirit so stir our hearts that we want to behold his face in prayer. May the Holy Spirit so stir our hearts that we desire to be with him. And may the ripple effect of our prayers extend to the nations and on into eternity for God's glory. I know one reason that I don't pray and maybe many of you do, is because we are so burdened with our guilt and our shame. Because we know what God's word says. We know we should pray and we don't, so we feel guilty about that. That keeps us from praying. We know we should be godly parents and spouses and and employees. And we don't, and so we're full of guilt and shame. We know we should read our Bible. We know we should tell people about Jesus. We know we should serve at the church. And we don't, and we feel so guilty. And some of you came in here with just baggage today. It's hard to sing because of your guilt. Let me read the words by scholar D.A. Carson. and Maybe it will set you free that you'll want to pray. He says, how dare you approach the mercy seat of God on the basis of what kind of day you had, as if that were the basis for our entrance into the presence of the sovereign and holy God. No wonder we cannot beat the devil. This is works theology. It has nothing to do with grace and the exclusive sufficiency of Christ. Nothing. Do you not understand that we overcome the accuser on the ground of the blood of Christ? Nothing more, nothing less. That is how we win. It is the only way we win. This is the only ground of our acceptance before God. If you drift far from the cross, you are done. You are defeated. 
We overcome the accuser of our brothers and sisters. We overcome our consciences. We overcome our bad tempers. We overcome our defeats. We overcome our lusts. We overcome our fears. We overcome our pettiness on the basis of the blood of the Lamb. You're free. You have a ticket into the presence of God. Come dirty. Because you're really clean in his eyes, Christian. You're free. Don't let your shame and guilt keep you from his presence. Just run into his presence to say, help, forgive me, cleanse me. We will overcome by his blood that has washed away our sins. This is our testimony. This is the gospel. Because Jesus overcame, we will overcome. Let's pray and then we will stand and sing it together.